your Bible with me today at Exodus chapter 16. That's where we're at this morning. If you're new or visiting, we study God's Word here verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's called expository teaching. Um, we have been uh, studying through the book of Exodus now for a little while, and uh, we're in chapter 16. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, there is one in one of the chairs before any of you. If you need one, ask around. Someone will, someone will share with you. But get this going, and uh, I'm going to start by uh, reading God's Word uh, and then uh, praying. Exodus chapter 16. It says in verse 1, this is a long chapter, but um, it's important. If, if, if you guys leave here with nothing then just other than hearing me read this and the Holy Spirit speak to you through it, then, then that's enough. Uh, I know God wants to do more, but... Um, uh, it's important for us to, to read God's Word, to, to know God's Word, and to study God's Word. And so, um, and uh, I know this may be, if you've been to other churches, this may be more Bible verses that you get in one Bible study than you have in a long time. But here it is, you're getting it, okay? Better for you to hear from God's Word than from me anyway. So here it says, verse 1, And they, speaking of the children of Israel, journeyed from Eliam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel, which came to the wilderness of Shur, which is between Eliam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Um, We'll talk about that. (laughs) Then verse 4, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Now, if I had been God, I might have said, Behold, I will rain down fire and brimstone from heaven upon you, you complaining people. But... um, it, he, he didn't say that, and I'm, I'm grateful because God's gracious, and, and I only want justice, it seems like, when it's, it's on someone else, right? Uh, I want grace and mercy, and, and, and I want to be more like God who gives grace and mercy. But it says, as we continue on, then the people and the people shall go out, and they shall gather a certain quota every day that I may test them. And you might underline that. That's, that's significant. There's an importance to that. That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day, verse 5, that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gathered daily. Then Moses and Aaron said to the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But What are we that you complain against us? Also Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us but against the Lord. We talked a little bit about that last week in, 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 in regards to our own complaining or, or reasons for blaming certain situations that we're in. But it says in verse 9 that then, then Moses spoke to Aaron and said to the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. 
Now it came to pass as Aaron spoke, the whole con- spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them saying, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And so it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew laid on, laid all around. The dew lay all around the camp, and when the layer of dew lifted, there was on the surface of the wilderness uh, a small round substance, as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, "What is it?" For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, "This is." the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This, verse 16, is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person, according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. And just so you know, omer, an omer is a dry measurement of about two quarts. So, in verse 17, it says, Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who had gathered little lacked, uh, had no lack. Every man gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it until the morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and it stank, and Moses was very angry with them. And so they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the, when, it, when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up, verse 24, till morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, eat that today for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it but on the seventh day the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened, verse 27, that some of the people went out on the Sabbath day to gather, but they found none. You might begin to think these guys were a little thick. And, verse 28, the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day, and the house of Israel called its name manna, and it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. I love this part. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, 
So Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. The children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now, it says in verse 36, an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Let's pray. Lord, as we study your word today together, I pray that it would do the work that you have sent it out to do. You tell us in the book of Isaiah that your word goes forth like rain, and it does not return void. It does what it, what it is set out to do. You accomplish, God, what you desire to do in our lives through your word, in our hearts and in our minds, by renewing us and changing us and sanctifying us and growing us to be more like your son, Jesus. And Lord, there's, there truly is a rest that is found when we read your word, study your word, and obey your word. And, and Lord, when this world has so many different thoughts and ideas and philosophies about what we should do and how we should do it, uh, God, there's no rest in all of that ever-changing confusion. But your word is today is, is like you. It's the same today and yesterday and forever. And um, Lord, we know that um, it applies to our lives. And so Lord, teach us um, by your word, through your spirit, for we believe that your word is truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. I, I thought it would be good for us as we continued on to this next chapter to kind of look at a timeline of the things that have been taking place that we've been reading about. And it's important for us to take a moment to review a timeline for these events for, for many reasons. And when we look back to the beginning of, of Israel's exodus, the, 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 not the first time that Moses came, but when God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, we should remember that it was in conjunction with the 10th plague, right? We've been studying through that. And, and with, that, with the 10th plague, God made the means for his people to escape that plague, the plague of death, with the institution of the Passover feast. And I don't want to go back into all of that this morning. You can go back and, and listen online to that study if you hadn't been here for it. But back in chapter 12, at that time, God said that the month in which he did these things, in other words, the month in which the 10th the plague came forth and the month in which the Passover feast was first instituted and kept, that that was to be the first month of the year on the religious calendar for the Hebrew people. And historically, the Passover feast is always celebrated on the 15th day of the first month, which is the month of Nisan, and, and it was that day, on that day, that the Hebrew people, were told, had gathered their belongings in haste and began their march out of Egypt. And with this information, we can look here to chapter 16, where it tells us in verse 2 that these things in which we're now reading about took place on the 15th day of the second month. So as we look at this in regards to a, a, a timeline of events, we see that, that now after 30 days of marching through the wilderness, specifically the wilderness of Shur, which was in Egypt, the children of Israel, it says, finally reached the borders of Egypt, and in departing from the land of Egypt, they entered into another wilderness, the wilderness of Sin, or the, wilderness of the Sinai wilderness, where Mount Sinai was at. And, and I point this out this morning because during those first 30 days, if you've been studying with us, we have seen that God has been making himself known to his people, just like he said he was going to continue to do here. That God had manifested himself to his people, first and foremost, as a pillar, 
You remember that? As a pillar that appeared as a cloud by day and as by fire at night. And in addition to protecting them from Pharaoh's armies with this pillar, because we know that shortly after they they marched out of Egypt, that, that Pharaoh gathered his chariots and his officers and his armies together, and he pursued after the children of Israel. It says he realized what he had done, and he regretted it. And, and, and God used that pillar of fire to, to keep Israel or the Pharaoh's armies away from the children of Israel as he led them. And um, in addition to protecting um, them from Pharaoh's armies with this pillar, we also know that God guided his people by it. And, and whenever or wherever the pillar moved, the whole camp followed. Furthermore, during these first 30 days, there's a lot going on in addition to, to God making himself known on a daily basis and leading and protecting his people. In these first 30 days, we know, as we read a couple weeks ago, that God had parted the Red Sea. And he made a way for the children of Israel to escape from Pharaoh's army. And after they had walked on dry ground through the Red Sea, as Pharaoh's armies pursued God's people, we know that God brought the Red Sea, which he had parted, down upon Pharaoh's army, and he destroyed all of them. Not one was left. As a matter of fact, it says that the bodies of Pharaoh's army were washed up onto the shore um, of the Red Sea. But even though God had been miraculously guiding his people and had been miraculously protecting his people, we saw from last week's study through chapter 15 that the Hebrew people, the children of Israel, they still had a lot to learn about trusting in their God, considering that they were quick to complain against God for having nothing to drink only three days after God had brought Israel from the shores of the Red Sea. And yet, God, who was patient with his people, he continued to provide for them in a miraculous way once again by turning the waters that they discovered, the waters at Marah, which were bitter water, into sweet water for his people to drink. Now, in light of all of these things, one would think that trusting in God would no longer be a problem for the Hebrew people who had experienced God's hand in so many Awesome and wonderful ways. Yet, in this next chapter, we see that this wasn't the case. That they still had issues of trust. They still had issues of faith, unbelief, doubt, fears, and worries that were bred up from that. And and we see that because this is now the third time in one month, in 30 days, that they were seen or found again to be complaining against God. And in doing so, they were questioning this time where their next meal was going to come from. And, and they were doing so because they were hungry. They were hungry. Last week, it was because they were thirsty, as we read through, through chapter 15. And this week, as we, we continue to read on, we see that it was because they were hungry. And in doing so, they, they even seemed to have taken a, a step further. They even disrespected God and all that he had done for them up to this point by saying, and it amazes me, that it would be better if God had just killed them while they were still back in Egypt. And even though they were remembering in verse 3 all of these pots full of flesh, uh, the pots full of meat and the abundance of bread they said that had filled their bellies, it's clear that they had chosen to forget other things, right? They had chosen to forget all that God had done over the last 30 days. They had also chosen to forget the bondage 
the beatings and the misery of their forced labor as slaves in Egypt that God had freed them from. But in light of this, I think it's safe to say or safe for us to conclude that the children of Israel, really they were in a state of despair. They were in a state of despair. And they really believed that they were going to die of starvation. Now you and I, we look at it and go, that wasn't going to happen. But they believed in that moment that they were going to die of starvation. And I have to be honest, from my point of view, it looks to me like they were being um, overly dramatic. <laughs> After all, God had promised to provide for them, and, and He had done so perfectly, exceedingly and abundantly, more than they could ever hope for and imagined up to this point for them, even when they didn't deserve it. But the fact of the matter is, is we all, we all have face things. I think we can relate to what's going on here on a personal way because we've all faced things in our own journey of faith that has caused us to waver in faith and have caused us to question God as we too have chosen to forget about the past faithfulness of God. We've chosen to forget about the things that God has done for us when we were also in despair or found ourselves in a, in a time of need and, and perhaps maybe even overreacted in a dramatic way. And in doing so, we went to this place of despair, not only in our hearts, but also in our minds, because we doubted God and we doubted His promises, and we wrongly believed in some form or in some fashion in that moment, in that time, we had come to believe that God had forgotten us. You know, we like, God, do you even see what's going on here? We, we even felt like God had forsaken us in our time of trouble. And like I said, we probably responded as well in an overly dramatic way and said and said and did things that we later regretted as we looked back and saw that God had been in control of the, of the thing through the whole time. And not only had it been in control through our thing through the whole time, but as we looked back on it, we could see that God was doing a good work through it. But in light of all this, I want to point out that the doubts and fears that, that come to us in these times of distress, they're, they're truly a part of being a human. Not to make an excuse for him, but it's, it's, it's an, to acknowledge a truth. That is what it means to be human, is, is we struggle with our doubts. We struggle with our fears. And, 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 and it tells us in the book of Psalms that God who created us, he knows that we are flesh. That we're weak in our human condition. And because of that, he dwells with us in a loving way. He's patient and kind and gracious and long-suffering towards us, just like he was here in this account with his people. However, God desires for us, he desires for us to grow in our faith. And more than just grow in our faith, guys, he, he desires, the word clearly tells us, as Paul writes over and again and over and again to the early churches, in the same, same kind of mentality, the same kind of thinking, is that God desires for us to not only grow in our faith, but to be rooted in it, to be grounded in our faith, so that we're not easily moved into these places of despair when we face that next time or that next adverse thing. Those times of adversity. I love God's word because it's, it deals with these kinds of feelings and thoughts that we all have. And in light of this, I want to first point out that the Bible gives us many accounts of people who doubted during times of adversity. God doesn't hide the human factor from us in his word. 
He reveals it so that we can relate to it. And then he gives us the answer and the hope to lead us out of that place into truth, into life, into place of joy, into the place of peace that we can have in our lives right now. And, 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 and for our account, God has recorded many people like us and like the children of Israel, others who have doubted in times of adversity. One of the ones that I like the most is with King David, who wrote many of the Psalms. And, and, and David wrote in Psalm 10, verse 1, and he really began this psalm with, with questions, two questions that he asked God in, a, in relationship to a time of adversity that he had gone through. And he said this in verse 1, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? You ever felt like that? He also said, Why do you hide in times of trouble? And, and the truth is, is it can feel like that. That's not the truth. God doesn't do those things. He doesn't stand afar off or hide from us in times of trouble and go, and go, I hope you figure it out. I'll see you on the other side. But as we're going through that, as we're journeying through the wilderness, figuratively speaking, and we come to these places where we're thirsty and we think we're going to die, or we're hungry and we think we're going to die, we're starving, we often go, where are you at, God? Have you forsaken me? Have you turned your back upon me? You know, and there are, there are many other similar questions like this that are asked by others throughout the book of Psalms. David, some of them, but others as well. And, and for example, in Psalm 13, verse 1, it says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And here's some other references for you. Again, in Psalm 27, verse 9, similar kinds of questions. Psalm 30, verse 7, additional questions just like this. Then again, in Psalm 44, verses 23 through 24. And again, there's others, but again, one other in Psalm 88, verses 13 through 15. Guys, furthermore, these same kind of questions were even asked by a, a, a man by the name of Job. And, and we know, at least with David, that he had done some things that caused some adversity to come upon himself because of his sin. Not always, but, but it was a big factor in it. But when we come to Job, what, we told about, what we're told about Job is, is only good things. It says that he was a righteous man, a godly man. And Job, a godly man, he too questioned God in his time of suffering, and he said this, Why do you hide your face and then he even took it a step further and regard me as your enemy. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? And like Job, there have been many other godly people who have questioned God in the midst of their adversity or, or, or at least us in times of adversity where we go, I've done nothing, God, to deserve this where it's not a result of our sin, and it's probably maybe even not a result of other sin. It's just a, a set of circumstances and, and, and situation that's befalled you. But really what it is, is we see even here, we can look back and we know, and we can be in the middle of it and know that it's a time of God's testing, time of God's refining. But nevertheless, there have been many people who have been in the midst of these situations and have asked if God was still for them. And when we face adversity in times of, of, of uncertainty, we might also ask questions like this. But I'm here to tell you, and God wants us to know through his word this morning, that in those times, in those moments, and with those questions... That is revealing, just like it did for the children of Israel, it's revealing our heart. 
And more specifically, it reveals our lack of trust and our unbelief that's bound up in our heart. And when we look for the, this is important, when we look for the outward deliverance, okay, when we're looking for the circumstances, the situation, the trouble, the adversity change, when we're looking for the outward deliverance to bring us an inward comfort and call into question in those moments God's proximity to us and, and, and maybe even God's care for us when we're, when, we're, when we're not being cared for in a way that we want or in a way that we expect, then we, by an act of complaint, have not only revealed our unbelief, but we've also, if you think about it, declared an injustice against God. And Moses makes that really clear as the children of Israel were complaining against him. And, and multiple times he's all there, hey, listen, we've been, and, and I'm sure, that, well, I'm not Moses by any means, but if I was Moses, I'd be like, listen, we're following God. You see it, it's the same thing. Where he goes, we go. And it was the same kind of thing last week as the Lord led him through the wilderness for three days and didn't find any water. God had brought him to this point and they hadn't found any food. And Moses all, why are you blaming me? Your complaints aren't against me. They're against God. And, and so the injustice that they were, they were bringing against Moses was really an injustice that they were accusing God of. They declared an against, and we, we, like them, declare an injustice against God. And in doing so, we really accuse God of not paying attention to us or even accuse God of an evil plan towards us. We know that the Word of God says that God's for us and that, that you know, who can be against us and that God's going to work all things together for good for those who love Him or are called according to His purposes. But I've been in that spot, and I'm sure many of you have before, where you're in it and you go, you trying to kill me, Lord? And actually, I, I, I usually say that in another way. I'm usually more of the complainer than the accuser. And just that's not that one's better or worse than the other, but I'm, I'm usually laying there in tears on the ground it's usually in my office, so nobody can see me, and, um, and I'm like, God, you're killing me. I'm dying here, and, and the Lord, he comes to me. He whispers in my ear, and he says, good. <laughs> you need to die so that I can live, and, and the thing about it is it's painful, but God's putting to, de to death the old man, that flesh nature, that sin nature. And, 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 and those are two different things, but at the same time, I don't, the point is I don't go in that moment, oh, I know you're doing a good thing, God. In my weakness, in my unbelief, in my doubt, in my fear, my worry, my anxiety, no matter what's going on, I'm doing this. I'm accusing God of evil against me. Just like the children of Israel did at the end of verse 3 when they said that God had brought them out to the wilderness to kill all of them with hunger. I mean, God, you're so spiteful. You wouldn't even kill us when we were back in, in Egypt. You just wanted to draw us all the way out here and lead us out here so that you could kill us. At one point, they even said it was because there was no more graves to bury us in back in Egypt. Because God had killed all the firstborn of Pharaoh and of the Egyptian people. And so they had really spent some time thinking about this, dwelling on this. They were meditating on the things that weren't true, the things that weren't noble, the things that weren't praiseworthy, and it was destroying them on the inner person. And it does the same thing for us. And in those moments, guys, really what's happened, like the children of Israel, 
God's not stood afar from us. We've chosen to stand afar from Him. We've chosen to stand afar from God and, and, and point our fingers with complaints and accusation and say, you're standing away from me. When we were the one that's moved, and the whole time God's chasing after us and say, come back, come back. And we say that he's the one that's forsaken us, but we've forsaken him. We've forsaken not only who he is, but the truth of who he is, and we've forsaken the memory of who he is and everything that he's done for us. But the bottom line, guys, and you know you know this, but hear it again, it's appropriate for where we're at. God has never promised that we wouldn't experience hard things in this journey of faith that he's called us to. Rather, this is what he's promised. He's promised to always be with us. And he's promised to give us a peace and a joy even when we're going through the hard things as we trust in him, as we literally take up residence by abiding in him. This is where I'm going to stay no matter what. I will be rooted and grounded in my faith in Jesus Christ. Believing what God has, 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 has told me and, and, and trusting in what he's already done as evidence of proof that he's going to continue to do good for me like he's always done. So, we must understand that the inward comfort that we're looking for will never come from an outward deliverance. An inward comfort that we're looking for in those moments, just like the children of Israel here, will really not come from an outward comfort. And we might think that it, was, that it did in this situation as the children of Israel got some food, but ultimately what, what brought them comfort or what God was wanting to, to see with this was not the manna because you know what? A few, a few months or weeks from now, you know what they're going to do about the manna? They're going to be like, why do we have to eat this manna every single day? Isn't that how we are? What God was doing here was making himself known. What God was doing here, as it says in here, is he said, so that I might be glorified. That's what they needed. That's what we need more of a relationship with our Lord and Savior, more of a knowledge and understanding of who our Heavenly Father is. That's what comforts us, not the outward changes, not the outward deliverance. Rather, the inward comfort comes from having faith in the fact that God sees our trouble, that he's aware of our need, and that he is a helper to the helpless. Now, as we continue on and move, really, we've gotten through three verses. Um, <laughs> if you look there to verse 4, what we see is that even though the children of Israel had complained and accused their God of ill will towards them, Rather than, not that any of us would do this, rather than calling out in faith in the time of need, we see in verse 4 that God still heard them. He listened to them. And in accordance, really, guys, to his grace and mercy, he met their needs. In fact, I love this. He did so without any delay that evening. And it told them, they told them in verse 8 that, that on that very evening they would have meat to eat, and then when they woke up in the morning, it would have rained down bread for heaven for them, he would. But it's important for us to pay attention to the fact that in telling him, in telling them that he was going, uh, in, in God telling them what he was going to do, God also told them what to do. And it always goes hand in hand. When God said, this is what I'm going to do, he's going to say, this is what you're going to do. This is what you need to do. And that is what we read about here in verses 4 and 5. And in verses 4 and 5, we'll, we'll look at the specificness of this, hopefully at the end of our study. But God gave them specific instructions regarding this gathering 
up of the bread and told them how much to gather, when to gather it, and when not to gather it. And in doing so, God said at the end of verse 4 that he was testing them in this. Testing them, here's what he was testing them in, testing them to see if they would believe and then obey. There's, that's always connected. The believing is in what God said he would do, and the obedience comes in what God tells us to do. What God says to do, what he's going to do, and what God says for us to do. And here's the reason why. Because in, telling, in, in, in giving the specific instructions and, and, and in um, um, testing them by telling them what to do, we see that if they would to believe, and uh, that with believing, there's also obedience. You see that? That with believing what God's do, there's always a call to obedience. And this is important because faith without action is empty. And God calls us into faith through our obedience. And this is important for us to take note of because it reminds us that in or on our own journey of faith, guys, we live on the promises of God and not on explanations. I think there's times when we would really go, I don't want your promises, I want the explanations. As a matter of fact, I heard somebody talking not too long ago, I just wish that I could have the burning bush experience where God would raise up and speak to me face to face. And, and I want that too. And God does speak to me and he does manifest to me, but, but, but it's not always with an explanation. Very rarely is it with an explanation. Usually it's with a promise. Remember what I've said? Remember what I promised? See what I've done? And, and like we've already talked about, guys, when we're hurting, it's normal for us as a normal human response to do what? To ask, why? Why am I hurting? But it's clearly the wrong response for us to take for two reasons. Because first of all, when we ask God that question, you know what we're doing? We are assuming a superior position. And we're, we're giving the impression that we're in charge and that God is accountable to us. And with, with our whys, we're calling him into account. Why, God, are you doing this? You need to tell me. I need to know. Yet God, who calls us to believe in what he says and to obey what he says, you know what? One of the, 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 the number one attributes of God that we overlook in that is the fact that he's sovereign. In other words, that we overlook the fact that he's the one in charge. He's the one on the throne. He's the one who is superior, and we're called to give an account to him. And he's superior in every way, and he does not have to explain anything to us unless he wants us to. And you know what? The whole book of Job, when you read there, and Job's questioning God a little bit, when God finally manifests himself to Job after his knucklehead friends come along, God says, God basically says, Job, where were you? And he goes into all of these things. And you get to the end of the book, and, and one of the, the disappointing things, or if you will, not that God's word's a disappointment, but one of the things that you're looking through the whole book of Job is an explanation for why Job had to go through what he went through. And you know what the answer is? God never says. God never says, Job, this is why. Because, because the peace and joy and comfort that we're looking for doesn't come through the explanations. The peace and joy that we're looking for comes through belief in the promises of God. And you know what? That's what we're really looking to do. We're assuming that with the, with the, with the, with the answer that we're going to have some receive this. But guys, there's an additional thing. Furthermore, when we ask why, you know what we're doing? We're assuming 
because we're so, so wise and so, so intellectual that even if God did explain his plans and purposes to us, that we would be able to understand every one of his ways and everything that he was doing, and we would then feel better. However, guys, the Bible makes it clear that even if God was to give us an explanation, that we would not be able to understand the ways and the plans of God because his ways are far above us. Furthermore, it says in Romans chapter 5 that his wisdom is unsearchable. It's unsearchable. And so explanations can't, explanations won't, and explanations don't heal broken hearts. But the promises of God do because promises, do you know what they depend on? They don't depend on our intellect. They don't depend upon our wisdom, our reason, our understanding, what we can see with our eyes. Promises depend upon faith. And faith is what puts us in contact with God's grace. Right? Even from the very beginning of this journey of faith, how do we receive the grace of God? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. By faith. And faith puts us in contact with the grace of God. And in this account, the grace of God, literally a work of God that, that he did for his people, um, it, 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 literally a work of God that the, that the people did not deserve, was manifested in verse 13. A work of God, grace. When? When the meat that God had promised to give flew right into their camps that evening. Furthermore, God's grace continued into the next morning, we're told, when the people woke up and they found the bread from heaven lying on the ground all around their camp. And in each of these and in each one of these um, um, occurrences, all the people had to do was, was receive what God had provided. Now in verse 31, we're told that the house of Israel called this grace of God, this manifestation of the work of God, they called it manna. <laughs> and I, there's so many, so many places I can go with this when we look at about in, in, in regards to the work that God does for us at times. Because the word manna is the Hebrew word manu, and it simply means, what is it? And how many times when we've been in need, <laughs> and we've seen the work of God in our lives, and, 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 and at first we go, what is it? What is it, God? What is it that you're doing here? What is it? And, 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 and um, this what is it... Um, this manu became the name for what we read here as the small, round, sweet, white substance, tasted like honey, that was found on the ground. You could either, I guess you could bake it, uh, you could boil it, um, maybe they were making, uh, maybe you could boil it and then bake it and then have a manna bagel. Um, but you could do all kinds of things with it, apparently. And... Um, if you look there in 15, this is what the children of Israel said when they came out of the camps and saw it that first morning. Literally, what is it? And this manna, we're told that the people would, that they would, the, 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 the manna that these people, that the children of Israel would daily feed on it, that it would be the very bread that kept them alive for the next 40 years. I don't think they understood that when they asked for it to begin with. They would literally be kept alive 
on this for the next 40 years until that next generation was raised up and they would enter into the promised land. And when we consider how this bread from heaven is what kept the Hebrew people alive, we really need to consider the New Testament gospel of John, John chapter 6, verse 6, or uh, just all of John 6. I'm going to go through some passages there in it. Because in John chapter 6, if you remember, that is the account where Jesus fed the 5,000, right, with the um, barley loaves, the five um, uh, barley loaves of bread and the two small fish. And we should, we should remember that and we should look to that because starting in chapter 6, verse 22, we're told that on the very next day, after Jesus had fed the crowds of the 5,000, you, know, you remember the story, and they gathered up 12 basketfuls of leftover as Jesus broke these things, gave thanks, and had his disciples spread them amongst the people. That next day, Jesus preached a message, a sermon about the bread of life to the same crowd of people which he had just fed the day before. And we are told in that chapter that those people had followed Jesus because they wanted him to feed them again. They wanted another free meal. They wanted more bread. They wanted more food. <coughs> and these people in trying to get the Lord to do this and trying to get them to, to, to feed them again, they, they, they connected the two together and they said, hey, um, by the way, why don't you feed us again and prove to us that you're the Messiah? And they specifically referred to the bread that they wanted at this time to be manna, that, that, that Jesus would duplicate the miracle of manna that their forefathers had partaken of. But Jesus, as he always did, he knew these people. And he knew that they were only following him because they, they had given them food for their body. But he also knew their need. He knew why they were following them, and he also knew what they needed. And he knew that they needed soul for their, or, or food for their soul, spiritual food. And in light of this, Jesus declared in chapter 6, verse 33, this statement. He said that he was the true bread, not the manna that had come down, but that he was the true bread that had come down from heaven. And then in verse 35, Jesus made one of the seven I am statements that he has associated to his ministry. And he said, I am the bread of life. And the point is, is the Old Testament manna, which we're reading about here, was always to be a picture that pointed forward to Jesus, a picture of Jesus who came to give himself to us as the true bread of life, one who nourishes us, one who sustains us. And because Jesus is the true bread of life that God sent down from heaven, he is the only way to be saved. That's why Jesus would, would say stuff like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And in order to be saved, we must receive him, we're told. We must receive him into our inner being, into our person, just as if, um, our, just like our body receives food. When we eat food, it becomes a part of us. And, and this is why Jesus went on to say at the very end of this, and this is when everybody went running away, he said that, he summed it up by saying, hey, this is why you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He said, if you're going to have eternal life, this is what you must do. And even though these people thought that Jesus was speaking literally about the, the, the eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood, we know that Jesus made it clear that he was speaking figuratively in order to convey a spiritual truth. The truth that spiritual life and spiritual vitality 
is the result of daily feeding on Him. And feeding on Jesus is done by this, by reading, by meditating, and, and lastly and finally, by obeying God's Word. Reading God's Word, meditating God's Word, and obeying God's Word. We only have a couple minutes left, so I'm just going to have to wrap it up with this. If you, if you look in this next section, the last few verses, and I'm not going to read back through it, I've read it once, but in verses 16 through 31, as we come to this end of this chapter this morning, I, I, I want to point out that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, specifically in verse 33, it tells us that God is not the author of confusion. He's a God of order. He's not the author of confusion. And whenever we see God start something new, like he did here by giving his people the bread from heaven to eat, he always gives instructions necessary to make the, the venture that he calls us to successful. Therefore, we can expect in our own lives that if we obey the God, instructions that God gives us, that then, then we'll be blessed. And likewise, if we, if we disobey, then we can expect that there's going to be disappointment and, and fortunately, even discipline in our lives. And in regards to the instructions given by God in connection with the, the, the manna, we first read here in verse 16 that every man was to, to gather it according to their daily need, one omer for each person. Then according to verse 21, we're told that it was necessary for them to rise up early in the morning and to gather the, mor- the, the manna because when the sun came out, it would get hot and it would melt away. There would be nothing left to get. In light of this, what I want to point out is, is, that, is that we can see that there was no place, first of all, in the camp for lazy people. For if someone just decided they were going to stay in, too bed, in bed too long, you know what? They weren't going to have anything to eat that day. It's a pretty good principle. Don't want to go on that too much. But in addition to rising early in order to gather the manna, we're told in verses 19 through 21 that there was also this instruction to gather only enough for the day and to not leave any of it until the next morning. And of course, as we might expect with the children of Israel, who we are like, Hebrew people did it anyway. And what they had kept in their pots went bad, and it bred worms. It stank. Justin, if you want to come up, I am going to end with this. So in addition to rising up each morning and not keeping more than you could eat for that day, we also see, starting in verse 23, that God also commanded his people to gather twice as much on the sixth day and to not go out and gather any on the seventh. And it always amazes me that they would go out on the seventh day and and look to see if there was some there, like it says here, because if they would have just looked in their pot, there would have been some there, just like God had said, but yet they didn't. And in doing so... God promised that on, uh, that on that day, on the seventh day, that he would um, not only keep the manna from stinking and rotting, but there would be enough there for them to eat on that day as they rested from gathering. And in verse 22, this is the first time that the Sabbath is mentioned by name. You might think, well, back in the, in the book of Genesis, you know, the Lord talks about a day of rest, and, but it is specifically used, referred to as a day of rest. This is the first time that we have the word Sabbath mentioned by name. And um, in light of this, it seems obvious that the children of Israel were taught to observe the Sabbath even before God gave them the law, right, um, with the Ten Commandments there at Mount Sinai. Now, as we close, I want to point out that in light of these instructions, there are a few 
additional lessons, spiritual lessons for us to learn that I want to leave you with as we, we go from this place. Things for us to consider. And it is when we remember that the Word of God is spiritual food. The Word of God is spiritual food for us. It nourishes our soul. It nourishes us on in their being. And, 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 and when we consider that, there are these lessons in that we should also look to start our day, guys, by reading and taking in God's Word every day with a personal time of devotion. Furthermore, we should come and eat from God's Word daily and not rely upon what we gathered yesterday to sustain us today, old manna, which is, is not good. God has something new for you today. Furthermore, as we gather God's Word, guys, this is what I want to end with. As we look at the Sabbath and what this relates to and in regards to believing and trusting and obeying in God, as we gather God's Word, you know what? We rest as we gather, gather God's word, we rest in, in, in what it says and what God tells us. And as we walk in obedience, there, there is a rest that is found as God makes his will known to us. Rest in God's word and rest in the obedience to God's word. This is what Paul writes about in the book of Hebrews as he says in chapter 4, verse 11. He says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. He says, why? For the word of God, guys, is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but in all things, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. And then, again, in regards to the word of God, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, it is profitable for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, so that we, the children of God, or the man of God, may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. And when you are equipped for the work that you've called to do, that's an entering into the rest for God's provision, for God's way. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the truth and the knowledge that we've received. I pray, God, that we would be encouraged with the trials that we're in, the adversities that we're going to face, to rest in you, to do what you've called us to do. Lord, to not look at the outward circumstances, but to look to you, to receive the blessing through the obedience, Lord, of, of, of following after you. And Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, will you stand as we sing a